Welcome to Heart Health Radio with board-certified cardiologist and internal medicine specialist, Dr. Franklin Weefall. Heart Health Radio, Heart Health Radio, oh, 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 hearthealthradio.com, Heart Health Radio. Heart Health Radio is meant for information purposes only. Before taking any action, talk to your doctor. And our number to call is 919-860-9783. I know you have a lot of questions. First, we want to welcome in our uh, internal uh, medicine specialist and cardiologist, Dr. Franklin Weefall. Well, you got, that, you, got that down, you got that down good. Yeah, yeah. Well, introduce yourself, you mellifluous. Okay, well, yeah, my that's name's a good Mike word. Slayman. That's a good word, yeah. Right. Yeah, Mike Slayman. I'm kind of a background uh, sort of guy. Uh, sell advertising, do commercials, and and help, uh, you know, with radio shows. Uh, I've been doing well, it just tell a you, long Mike, time. Mike's a fundamental person. Uh, for a lot of shows, and you know, it, it, he's got a tremendous radio background. You started how many years ago? Oh my goodness, back in uh, college! Wow, I uh, stumbled into my campus radio station. What college was it? It was Virginia Commonwealth University. Yeah, VCU. Yeah, VCU. Yeah, great place. VCU. What's the What's the mascot? Uh, it's a ram. Ram. Yes, it's a ram. Yeah, it's a ram. And would you have a fifty watt? 50,000-watt no, station? What it was was carrier current. What the heck is that? So if you had a radio <laughs> and you plugged it into the receptacle- No way. You could bring up, I think it was 800, 820. Uh, yeah, you could bring it up. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And all the while, I was a program director, so yeah. tried to get it to go- you know, uh, to everybody, but uh, that just took a lot. Yeah. Now at, now they've got at, it. At Princeton, yeah. they had a really, really good radio station, WPRB. Mm. And they, I think they're 50. Is that what the big ones are, 50,000 watts? Is that what it is? That's pretty big. Yeah. 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 But I can hear them. You know, they have an AM, FM deal, sort of like what you guys have. Yeah. And yeah. at night, I can sort of tune them in. Yeah. You know, it's kind well, of I've fun. always loved radio. I, I know you're a big radio lover. Yeah. And, um, you know, this, uh, this show is really helping a whole lot of folks out there. Well, I try. And, you know, um, what, what I think is great about the opportunity I've had here is to do what I do in the office uh, for 60,000 people, mm-hmm. you know. And that's explain things. And, you know, I don't know, Mike, when was the last time you went to the doctor? Have you been pretty healthy? Yeah. 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 So if you go now, and this is the thing that all my patients tell me is that they don't get any FaceTime. Um, the the docs have their computers and they have the laptop open and they're staring at the laptop and they're typing away. And the questions are, are brusque um, because the docs have to get their notes done. Mm-hmm. For example, if you work for a big corporation and corporations are taking over medicine, um, if you work for a, a medical group affiliated with, say, a hospital group, you have to have your notes done before the patient leaves the office. And mm-hmm. that is a big burden because, you know, you have 15, 20-minute slots, um, and the physicians now are data entry people. They have to enter their own information. They don't dictate anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes a rushed situation. And for me... The best part of what I do is teaching, and I'm talking about teaching the patient, because if they know something 
about the process of the disease or the condition they have, it makes a lot more sense to them what they do every day to treat it and why their medicines are being taken and why their diet is so important. And it's it's one of these things that I think um, people and patients are going to demand in the future that um, we go back to some of the old ways. Technology mm-hmm. is great. And I think the electronic medical record has a lot of great things. Um, I miss my big, thick charts, though. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I had these thick charts that had everything, and I had it all tabbed and everything, and I could move around, and I knew what to It's like my mother. She never – she's Chinese. She never used a calculator. It was an no? ab- abacus. Oh, yeah. And I'm telling you, she could look there and and slide these beads and then look down – and she'd have her answer. It was really <clears throat> fantastic. So, you know, I think that um, this is what I want to do in the show, which so, is people, I want people to listen to the radio and get educated about what they need to know um, about their disease process and what can happen. It, you know, it seems like we're moving toward more telemedicine. What, what are we missing? I, I, tell you, I hate telemedicine. Um, and what I, I can't stand are these uh, practices that are being sold for a billion dollars yeah. that are based purely on telemedicine. And I knew you, I don't know if you know this, but Amazon had one. Mm. And I can't remember the name of it, but they spent a billion dollars on it and they just closed it down. And you know mm. there was no way that it was going to work. Their concept was that they were going to get executives to pay $10,000 a month to have the opportunity to stare at a computer screen and talk to some doctor in, in Ipshuana, you know? Yeah. And it just wasn't right. I mean, it's I love the face-to-face interaction. That's what it's all about for me. And, um, yeah, I have a lot of technology in my office, but it's secondary to the, I'm going to use this word, intimacy that goes on between the physician and the patient. You know, I had a professor at Johns Hopkins, his name was Philip Tumulty, very famous guy. And he, he described the interaction of a physician and a patient as a chess match. Mm-hmm. You know, the patient would make a move, that would be their symptom. The physician would make another move, which is trying to analyze the symptom and drawing out more um, questions and, and drawing out more answers. Mm-hmm. And checkmate was when we had the diagnosis and, and know what to do. And so now it's more like Pac-Man. You know, (laughs) think about it. You are chewing through those beads to get out of the office as soon as you can, and it's just a shame. Well, if you have a question for Dr. Weefald, please uh, just dial 919-860-9783. When we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, a couple of things. One, uh, Duke, they do some amazing things. This is really amazing, a partial heart heart transplant. We're going to find out. In a newborn baby. We'll find out about that coming up. You are tuned to Heart Health Radio on FM 98.5 and AM 680 WPTF. Welcome back to Heart Health Radio. We are with Dr. Franklin Weefald, and uh, we do have a caller coming up. But first, we're we're going to shame somebody. um, I'm going to shame the Biden administration. Uh Uh-oh. Well, you know, free speech is fundamental to what we do, and and it's fundamental to 
medicine and what we can say and believe. Well, I just we just found out there was a federal lawsuit and it came out that the Biden administration was calling um, directly the people who run social media. What's mm-hmm. that guy's name who runs uh, Meta now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Zuckerberg, yeah. Yeah. And basically saying, hey, hey, we got some Russian disinformation about this. Got to watch out. And then therefore they censor what turns out to be true. And a prime example of that would be, you know, that there was a lot of evidence that COVID came from a lab in Wuhan. And that was, you know, taken away as misinformation. Well, you know, it turns out that the Biden administration was behind this. And, you know, it's just wrong. Mm. If you disagree, get on the platform and disagree with them. Don't, yeah. don't censor it. Okay. All right. Well, let's go to Ralph in Kerry. And Ralph, uh, welcome to Heart Health Radio. You have a question? Yes, I do. And hey. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, hey, I've been experiencing chest pain probably for the last eight months, maybe six to eight months. And uh, I've seen a doctor, and of course they did EKG stress test, couldn't find anything. And finally they ran a test, I forgot the name of it, but where they ran a dye uh, in my body. And uh, she came back and said, hey, you've got a small blockage. Uh-huh. And she started me with Crestor, okay. uh, and she gave me a prescription for a five milligram uh, tablet. But she's letting me take half of that at night when I go to bed. Uh, but I still have chest pain. She gave me uh, a medication for pain. I'm still experiencing, uh, and there's no rhyme or reason when the chest pain comes. Sure. It's not when, not when I exert myself or after I've cut the grass. It could be late at night while I'm, you know, uh, resting. Yeah. But uh, you have any advice? Any sure. I can't diagnose you because I'm not, you know, uh, your physician and I'm not seeing you face to face. But we can talk about this as a general situation because it's it's real frustrating. I see this all the time. And so it sounds like they did a heart catheterization. They put the tube up your leg and squirted dye and found a, a moderate or mild blockage. Is that is that what it was? That's what it was, yeah. Yeah. All right. So what that means is that you don't have a, a large amount of cholesterol blocking the major arteries. Um, the arteries are like a tree, okay? You have a big trunk, you have branches, and then you have these little twigs, right? And then you look at the leaf, and the leaf has, uh, you know, little twigs in them, little, you know, um, passage, passageways. And that's the same way in the heart. Every single heart muscle has a individual artery to it. So what's in the big arteries isn't necessarily the whole story. So people can have what we call angina from microvascular disease. And that needs to be looked at because um, it can be the same symptoms as somebody who has a major blockage in the major artery that needs a stent. But chest pain from the heart usually comes on with exertion. And the reason is it's sort of a supply and demand issue, right? If you've got blocked arteries, uh, it restricts the supply. And if you're doing something physical, you have a greater demand. And so that's one of the things that I ask my patients. Are they short of breath with exertion? Are they having tightness, heaviness, pressure, sharp pain when they exert themselves? 
Now, that's not always true because if you're about to have a heart attack, you can have symptoms at rest. So, I mean, that's one way to try to distinguish heart pain or heart discomfort from something else. Now, what else could be causing chest pain? The biggest thing that I see when it's not the heart is esophageal reflux. And not only esophageal reflux, but spasming of the esophagus. The esophagus sits right on the back of the heart. And if acid gets out of the stomach and goes up into the esophagus, the esophagus can't take a joke. It hates acid. Your stomach was made to make acid, but also to be protected from acid. So that can feel just like a heart attack. And, you know, it's something that needs to be considered. Can you describe the the pain that you have? Because pain can come from muscles in the chest. It can come from inflammation of the uh, ribs and the cartilage in the chest. Uh, It can come from a blood clot that goes into the lung. I mean, there's a whole litany of things that we have to look into. But part of it is, how, what do you, how do you feel? Describe to me. Tell me the story. And that's the thing that we don't do enough uh, is, is listen to patients' stories. So tell me the story of when you have this pain, just like you'd be telling a friend. Well, it's just a dull pain that comes on, and it seems to go up to my face, and my teeth really hurt, and it'll last for maybe five minutes. Wow. Know, if I lay down, it'll go away. It goes away when you lay down. Yeah. Does it ever come on when you lay down after a heavy meal? No, but one thing you said about the esophagus. Yeah. There are times I can't swallow, and it's very difficult swallowing. Ah. And would, I mean, that sounds like something maybe I need to address. Yeah, they haven't looked at that yet? No. Okay. I did have one doctor look at that, but he couldn't find anything. Okay, what, he put the tube down your throat? Yeah, he put yeah, the endoscopy. Let me let me tell you something about that. There's something called anatomy, and then there's physiology. Okay, so the anatomy, uh, when you do the endoscopy, you can look at the tissue. Okay, so you're looking at the esophagus, and is it red? Is it inflamed? Um, and then you look at the stomach, and you you see the same thing. When you have acid reflux, and it causes the esophagus to spasm, you sometimes on the endoscopy see nothing. Okay, Uh, maybe just a little irritation that doesn't, you know, seem remarkable to people. There's a test that I do called a barium swallow, and they give you this milky, chalky stuff, and you sit in front of what's called a fluoroscope, which is a movie picture x-ray, and they watch it go down. And sometimes what you see is something called presbyesophagus. Uh, And what that is is it's just as food goes down, the esophagus just just spasms. We used to call it nutcracker esophagus because it would, as it went down, it looked like it's just cracking a nut mm. as the um, the stuff goes down. And then you could also see the barium that shows up whitish on the X-ray fly up back into the esophagus. Now, again, I'm not saying this is what you have, but these are things to look into. Let me ask you a question: Have have you ever just taken an antacid like Pepsid? or Zantac. Uh, you, you can't take Zantac anymore. It's mm. it's off the market because of uh, cancer-causing uh, contaminant. But mm. have you ever just tried that and and, and see if it helped? Uh, I did a couple of times, and the problem did not go away. How long did you take it for? Uh, just a couple of times. During yeah, the- <laughs> and sometimes you need, you need to take it longer. 
Um, do you ever have sharp pain in the chest by the, the breastbone? Does that ever come on the no. same time? Okay. No. Okay, so if I'm, if I'm correct, you have this discomfort, it's dull, and sometimes right. it goes up into your neck, and you can feel it in your jaw. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't come on when you're walking or doing something physical. No, actually yeah. not. You know, I, I, I pride myself in being active, and, you know, it's not when I go out and cut grass or anything or yeah. get really hot and sweaty. Yeah. Well, if if I had you as a patient and, you know, we had a formal relationship, so someone like you, the first thing I'd go for is a GI situation and whether you have a problem. Now, what's the difficulty swallowing? Is it in the mouth or does it feel like things get stuck in the middle of your chest? What's what's yeah, that feel like? Yeah, it's like stuff gets stuck in yeah. the middle of my chest, especially when I eat something heavy like a biscuit in the morning or maybe like fried chicken. Oh, you're making me hungry. I skipped dinner. <laughs> Come on. To get here. Now, okay, this is part of it too then. Um, and, um, you know, it, it may just be that you have this spasming esophagus that um, could be uh, related to your discomfort. Talk to your doctor about it. See if he or she wants to investigate that. Um, but it yeah. sounds, you know, one of the things I think that's good for you, uh, even though you don't know what this is, uh, you know what it's not, correct? I mean, you know you're not going to drop dead of a heart attack. Um, right. Now, <laughs> I can't guarantee that, but right. someone like you, less than a thousand chance, one in a thousand chance in the next five years of having a heart attack and dying because you've had these tests to rule out the contribution of the heart uh, toward your symptoms. So, you know, you can face the world and go forward and say, hey, this is something. Uh, I'm going to find out what it is and feel better. And I have really bad acid reflux. I mean, bad. And my symptoms are a burning sensation in my mid-chest. And then when that's happening, I can't swallow either. I mean, if I try to chew uh, some Cheez-Its or a nab, it just, that stuff gets stuck in there. And I got to take some Coke and swig it down and, and really, you know, sort of wait. And I have to take what's called a PPI or a proton pump inhibitor every day or else, I mean, I'm, I'm disabled from it. And, okay. you know, I can have surgery for it, but I don't want it. I mean, the medicine's working and um, right. it's okay. So, you know, the good news is you had these heart tests. Uh, they turned out okay. Um, the good news is that your likelihood of having a fatal heart attack is extremely small. And the good news is there are lots of ways uh, that doctors can proceed with very simple testing um, and find out. Um, I I sometimes do what's called a test of cure, and I give this thing called a GI cocktail. Have you ever heard of that? It's pretty amazing. Okay, so it's a third Maalox, a third Pepto-Bismol, and a third something called viscous lidocaine, okay? So if somebody comes in and they're having chest discomfort, and it's not cardiac, I'll give them a swig of this, about 10 cc's, which is two teaspoons. And if it goes away, then that's another way you know that it's probably from the esophagus. Okay. Well, well listen, good, good luck. Let us, know, let us know later on what they find out it is. I will, and thank you so much. Hey, thank call you. us anytime. All right, have a great one. Thank you so much, Randy, for uh, calling in. Uh, we're going to find out uh, around the break uh, about uh, Duke partial heart transplant in an. 
to Heart Health Radio with board-certified cardiologist and internal medicine specialist, Dr. Franklin Weefold. And the doc is in, uh, and he will take your call, right? 919-860-9783. That was, that was a really good call from uh, our last caller. He yeah. was just, that's a really good issue. What chest pain that's not from the heart? What is it? But uh, th- we're talking about the queen, um, Elizabeth II. You believe she lived 96 years old? Unbelievable. And, and you think back, hardly any of the, the uh, kings or queens lived that long. And um, and relatively healthy. Well, yeah. I mean, she really had no illness uh, to speak of. Although you know, we don't really know. They don't. It's not like the president where they have to disclose his illnesses. But Tuesday, just Tuesday, she made a face-to-face, you know, upright visit with the new prime minister, and she looked great. I mean, mm-hmm. she looked great to me for a 96-year-old. And then mm-hmm. two days later, she's dead. What could be the cause? Now, I doubt they're ever going to reveal. I mean, that's the privacy that goes on. Like, what did Prince Philip really die from? Yeah, I guess he had strokes and heart issues. But you can get some clues. I mean, she was told to rest. Uh, she was told not to drink any more alcohol. Um, and she used to have a toddy. You know, that's a mm, British term. Right. A toddy at dinner time. And the speculation, and this is speculation, is that she had some sort of blood disease, um, you know, myeloproliferative, where the blood cells don't grow as much. But you have to wonder, you know, what could cause such a deterioration so quickly? And, you know, it, it's really a blessing. Uh, my mom lived to about 90 and my dad to 92. Mm-hmm. And it, it's quite a blessing to be a nonagenarian, although it's not uncommon anymore. Um, old is not as old as it used to be, mm. you know. So uh, it's a it's a, a a good thing that um, we have uh, the ability now to keep people going, even with serious serious illnesses. And I have 92, 95 year olds who've got pacemakers, have had stents, mm-hmm. and they're living good lives. Yeah. So yeah. I think uh, hats off to the queen for a long life. And um, maybe we'll find out what day, one day what really happened to her. Maybe. And we go from someone that's almost 100 to someone that's almost zero. Zero, yeah. <laughs> so let's I, talk I'm about I'm tell this. you, there, there is a great story out of Duke, a lot of great stories out of Duke. Um, the pediatric cardiac surgery program is run by a guy named Joseph Turek. Uh, he's an MD and PhD. And he's chief of the cardiac, or pediatric cardiac surgery program. So there was a, a newborn... Uh, his name was Owen Monroe, and he was born with a particular uh, congenital condition called truncus arteriosus. So mm. you have the pulmonary artery coming off the right heart that feeds blue blood into the lungs where it becomes red blood, and I'm talking about oxygen, and then it pumps out into the aorta from the left heart. Well, believe it or not, Owen was born with only one tube. So the aorta and the pulmonary artery had fused together while he was a, in, in utero, while he was growing as a baby. That is a fatal um, problem because you can't get the blood into the lungs. You can't get the blood to the body mm. because the hearts are mixing, trying to get the blood out of one uh, uh, vessel instead of two. Mm-hmm. So they had a donor. Um, and you know, it's unfortunate whenever there's a baby donor, that means that the baby died from other causes. 
But the problem was that the ventricles, the uh, heart pumping chambers in the donor were weak. And so the baby, Owen, was going to die without something done quickly. And it's interesting, they're now doing heart transplants as one of the primary cures for congenital heart disease. And think about it, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of creating a new pathway for blood to flow, just put it in a whole new heart. Of course, the problem is um, you can't find some. You know how big a newborn's heart is? A walnut. That's how big a newborn's heart is. Mm -hmm. So you can look at these blood vessels, and they're tiny. Um, And Dr. Turek decided... To transplant not the whole heart, but to transplant the aorta and the pulmonary artery into the new baby. And so what he did was, instead of taking the whole heart, he took the tubes coming out of the heart, took them out of Owen while he was in the operating room, and then transplanted the good ones, sewed them into the right places, created the right holes, and Hmm. he's doing great. Changed out the plumbing. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. He kept... He, he uh, kept the walls and the doors, the, the muscle and the valves, and put in some new plumbing. So Owen is doing well. Um, Duke is it's just another example of how lucky we are to have uh, an institution like Duke so close to us. Um, and they're one of the top cardiology programs in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, hats off to Dr. Turek and the Pediatric Cardiac Program and Duke itself. You know, sometimes terms really scare you. And um, I know somebody that has uh, suffered a stroke. Yeah. And now they are facing uh, a cardiac embolism. Yeah. Is that common with the stroke? Uh, Let me tell you, a stroke can be caused by a clot. And what happens is a clot either comes from a fib where the top of the heart's not beating well, and little clots form from the sluggish blood flow and they go up to the brain. Well, you can have a clot anywhere in your body. So there's something called VTE or venous thromboembolism. And what they're finding now is if you're in the hospital with a stroke, mm-hmm. you gotta get mobilized. Um, you gotta do that physical therapy because when you're lying in bed, the blood is not flowing as quickly. It's sluggish, especially in the legs. <clears throat> because what keeps our blood flowing in the legs is the muscles squeezing them. So <clears throat> that often, I don't know if you've been into the hospital and you see these plastic bags. Uh, I can't describe it as, as nicely. These tubes uh, uh, overcovering the legs that are mm-hmm. being inflated intermittently by oxygen. So it's trying to stimulate the blood flow. Well, when you've had a clot in the brain uh, from a stroke, your body has a higher level of clotting all over. So it's kind of like when you have COVID and you get inflammation from the immune system, it affects head to toe. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same thing we're finding out. And so the big news that's come out is that if you've had a stroke, you're at seriously higher risk of getting this venous thromboembolism. And then what it can do, these clots in the big veins of the legs break off and they Mm -hmm. go through the bloodstream, through the right heart, and into the lung, that's called a pulmonary embolus, mm-hmm. and it can kill you. Now, if you have a hole in your heart, which a lot of people do and they don't know, it's called an atrial septal defect, that clot can travel across the barrier between the right heart and the left heart and get into the regular circulation 
and or the the you know that where the aorta is and the, and where you get your blood pressure from, and it can actually go in the coronary artery uh, and cause a heart attack or another stroke. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so if your loved one is in the hospital and if they you know immobilized or partially paralyzed, that's why they get physical therapy in there right away, mm-hmm. and that's why they put them on an anti-thrombotic agent like aspirin, sometimes Plavix hmm. uh, or clopidogrel to reduce the tendency of the body to clot everywhere else. So, good point. Okay. Well, you're listening to Heart Health Radio. If you want to join in the uh, discussion, we'd love to hear from you. 919-860-9783. This is Heart Health Radio on FM 98.5 and AM 680 WPTF. You will. Yes, uh, this is Heart Health Radio. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so who do you <coughs> want to shout Did you see, uh, um, oh, what's the name of it? Animal House? Oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it brings back a lot. Every time I hear that song, I think of junior, junior year at, yeah, yeah. at college. Well, we're going to shout out my, my radio host and partner, Dave Alexander. He's in the hospital, and he's having some problems with his feet, um, but we're all praying that he gets better quick. I uh, hope he's listening. Um, if he is, uh, I ha- don't have any hesitation to tell Dave how much I love him. What a great human being he is. He's a f- great father, a great husband, a great friend, a great radio host. I can't, I, you think, I can't find a thing wrong with Dave. No, no. You know, no, just, just a superhuman being. Super guy. So, yeah, we're all praying for him to get better. I know he will. He's got great doctors, and um, God bless you, Dave. Let's talk a, a minute about patients over the age of 65 uh, and the fact that they really need a heart check before any high-risk non-cardiac yeah. surgery. And, you know, Why is was, that? This is a big thing. Um, <clears throat> I can remember one of the first things that I had to do <clears throat> as a cardiac fellow at Duke was on the consultation service, and we'd get a lot of consults. Um, what's the risk? This patient has a hot gallbladder. We need to do gallbladder surgery. Or we need to do, you know, major abdominal surgery. What's the risk? How can we maximize the potential a patient will do well by minimizing the heart risk? And it was always a difficult thing. And we had these mm-hmm. point score systems based on their age, what type of cardiac condition they had. <clears throat> but it used to be thought that if you're over 65 and you've not had a history of a heart condition, that you don't need a cardiac evaluation. So they did a study, and they found out that those people, they, they randomized them, people over 65 who needed major surgery. And we're not talking about, you know, taking off, you know, a, a, a skin cancer or something. You know, this mm-hmm. is, you know, bowel surgery or, you know, knee operations. Um, and they said, okay, we're going to get half of these people who have no symptoms, they're over 65, we're going to get them checked out by a cardiologist first. And even though the vast majority turned out okay, they picked uh, up some silent cardiac problems that needed to get addressed and to fixed beforehand so that the surgery went smoothly. I mean, people don't realize this because you're asleep, you're under anesthesia. 
And so, you know, you have a little pain when you wake up from a surgery. But there's no difference to your body having, say, your chest opened up and having a, a tumor taken out than getting hit by a baseball bat. You mm-hmm. know, your body has been invaded. It's a trauma. Even though it's done in the operating room and people are wearing masks and it's quiet and there's probably music playing, um, your body is being attacked by knives <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and all sorts of instruments while you're sleeping. And so your mind is at rest. But the stress, I mean, talk about a stress test. I mean, there's no greater stress test for a body, for a heart, than having lung surgery or abdominal surgery. So the question becomes, hey, I got a 65-year-old man. He's not having chest pain or woman, uh, not having cardiac symptoms. But now we know the safest way to go is to have a cardiac evaluation prior to major surgery. Now, you may not need a stress test. Uh, You may need just a consultation with a cardiologist, have your vital signs taken, have a resting EKG taken, um, maybe an ultrasound uh, Mm -hmm. if you are having some possibly typical symptoms, maybe a stress test. It's not an automatic thing to get a mm-hmm. stress test. But when you've had that cardiac clearance and you can get you know, put into a risk situation, they can, based on that risk, choose the appropriate anesthesia. They can choose the uh, appropriate post-op recovery. So if you're 65 and you're going to have major surgery, and even if you've not had a heart issue, if you've had a heart issue, you definitely want to make sure your cardiologist knows and has looked you over. But if you don't, you might ask your doctor, hey, would it be good for me, if this is an elective surgery, to get checked out, to have a Mm -hmm. cardiac clearance? Now, you know what the biggest problem nowadays is? Mm. That might take six weeks to get in a cardiologist's office. One of my big things is that um, I reserve spaces uh, for patients like this. So the longest wait time for somebody who needs surgery and needs a cardiac clearance is about three days in my office. Of course, you know, I wind up seeing 44 people and get out at 8 o'clock at night, and most people aren't that dumb. They want to have a life, not like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I'm joking, Owen. But, you know, probably a good idea to just get checked out. 919-860-9783. If you want to talk to Dr. Franklin Weefald here, this is Heart Health Radio. I read something uh, recently about it's a good idea after you after you eat yeah. that you should at least stand up or maybe take a walk. Yeah, and, and you know why? They say it's related to blood sugar? Uh, yes. Okay, so what happens when you eat? The stomach gets distended. Okay. And in order for the stomach to initiate the digestive process, there has to be increased blood flow mm. into the stomach. And in order to get the food out of your stomach, it, there has to be increased blood flow and something called peristalsis. And what's that? Mm. That's the rhythmic contraction of muscles moving food out. Now, believe it or not, one of the major ways to treat diabetes now are these medicines called the GLP-1s. They are called incretins, and one of the main, they sort of make your body more efficient in using insulin, but one of the ways that they lower your sugar is they get the food out of your stomach mm. ASAP. Now, I don't mean that quickly, yeah. but they move the food into the uh, digestive uh, areas of the uh, small intestine, 
and it lowers your blood sugar. So if you're a diabetic, you can if you get up and take a walk, that actually, through the force of gravity, mm-hmm. moves the food out of your uh, stomach more quickly. Wow. One of the things you should never do, and what I do all the time, <laughs> oh, no. is eat and then go lay down. Okay, you oh, just yeah. don't want to do it, and I have really bad acid reflux because of that. So I try, you know, when I get home, usually got to walk the dog right away. Uh-huh. I try to eat first, and then I got the excuse to walk the dog and get that food moving out of my stomach as, as in, in an efficient manner. That's one of the reasons why one of the major side effects of these GLP ones, and that's Trulicity, Ozempic, and the new one Majero, is nausea and vomiting. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people have, have uh, stomachs that just, when you're diabetic, they just are kind of flabby. And when you get these uh, medicines that start to stimulate the movement of the stomach, mm-hmm. it can make you sick. So that's mm-hmm. one of the problems. Yeah. Uh, 919-860-9783. Uh, you were telling me- um, I want to talk about this. You, th- uh, this is interesting. So take a walk, but take a walk to church. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know, Okay. Maybe it's not. I, this is what's bothering me. It's, it's not. It's not recognized anymore. The value um, of in, in this in the mainstream media, mm-hmm. the value of religion, and so the question always is, what does religion do for you? Well, the new studies have shown in African Americans. The study was done and published in the Journal of the American Heart Association. I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. One of the top cardiac journals. Okay, so this isn't a fly-by-night organization. This was a scholarly study done by scientists who wanted to know in African Americans who were religious and who attended church regularly, did they have less uh, heart disease? And the answer is 15% less. And listen, mm-hmm. we don't have very many medicines that lower the risk of heart disease more than 15%. Mm. And so uh, these guys were from the Mayo Clinic. So you know, I'm telling you, this is the Journal of the American Heart Association. The scientists were from the Mayo Clinic, and they did this very good scientifically-based study. They studied those who did not attend a church, uh, African-Americans and blacks, and those who did. And those who regularly attended church had um, a much lower risk of heart disease. So keep that in mind. That um, religion and church uh, can be a good thing for your health. Okay, uh, this is Heart Health Radio. We've got a caller. It's uh, Philip from Raleigh. Uh, hi there, Philip. How can we help you? Yes. Good afternoon. Hey, I've got, I've got an interesting story. I think. Great. I'll, I'll be very. I'll be very, very quick. It's oh, just tell not... your story. Come on. Okay. <laughs> My son had uh, a seizure condition. Okay. Epilepsy. Uh huh. And it was diagnosed as Rolando epilepsy, which I think is a part of the brain. Which one again? I didn't hear you. Rolando. Y-O-L-A-N-D-O? No, starting with an R. Rolando. 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 Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we were in Germany and had private insurance. Uh-huh. So we got the best of the best. We got the head of uh, pediatric neurology at the University of Heidelberg, one of the major medical schools. Wow. And uh, yeah, he, he was very good. 
and he, he didn't have seizures every day, but mm-hmm. you know, he, it, it's, it's no fun for a parent, obviously. Uh-huh. Uh, but, um, he prescribed a medication, Ospolot. Wow. Okay. Which was not available in the United States. And that, that's stopped. not unusual. You know what? A lot of drugs are available in Europe five, six years before you can get them in the U.S. Well, they're <clears throat> available in, in parts of Europe, Czech, yeah. the, the Czech uh-huh. Republic, Australia, and, and whatnot, but uh-huh. uh, we, we couldn't get them here. Uh-huh. So, so we found a, a doctor here that actually, to my surprise, would write the script. Uh, even though it was not, it was not FDA approved, and uh, he said it's up to you to figure out how to fill it. Wow! And, and now, um, where have you I'll looked to my, try to get it? Well, well, I'll give my wife full credit. Oh my gosh, it what'd she do? It was approved in Israel. She found it at the Israeli pharmacy in Canada. Oh my god! <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah, I'm looking up. Yeah. I'm looking up rheumatic epilepsy. Did, did did it start with twitching of the face? They they talk about facial or, or cheek twitching, and then numbness in the tongue, difficulty speaking, drooling, and then sometimes it generalizes. Is that a good? Is that the ex, Is that a good description? Uh, he would just he would just go out. Uh-huh. I don't know how to uh-huh. describe it. He would just go out and have a full seizure. Wow. Okay. But uh, the the drug was Ospolot, and uh, she found it at the Israeli pharmacy in Canada. And, and, we and they took the, the U.S. prescription and, and filled it. Yeah, they were awesome. It. They filled it for years. And how's it working? Well, he he turned nineteen and moved out, and and fortunately, um, as predicted, he he outgrew it. Oh wow. So he's he's thirty seven now and has hasn't had had a seizure in fifteen twenty years. That's fantastic. Well, what a great story! And this is you know listen, I always try to teach my patients take the bull by the horns, and the more you know uh, about the condition or the illness, and the more you you know pester and ask questions and don't take no for an answer, you wind up finding a solution. And, uh, you know, kudos to your wife and you. It sounds like a great, great story. Well, thank you, doctor. Yep. Call us again. Let us stuff. know how things are going with you. With okay. me. All right. Well, uh, we just have a few seconds oh, left no. here. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's well, I, time. I'm going to tell the listeners I'm cutting it short today. Um, we normally do two hours. We'll, uh, I've got to go <clears throat> and do something with my family. But I'm going to miss the second hour. But next week, we'll be all set. On at noon on WPTF.